Your call to the home of a 41-year-old man complaining of abdominal pain. His roommate says he's been vomiting all day. The patient denies any previous medical history, but admits he doesn't have a doctor and can't remember the last time he had a checkup. You take his vital signs, and they are blood pressure, 140 over 50, heart rate, 102, oxygen saturation, 96% on room air. You document respirations as 16. You're listening to 911Cast, the no-nonsense EMS podcast. This episode is brought to you by Madison Programs, a Brooklyn-based medical training and consulting company with over 20 years of experience specializing in emergency medical continuing education and AHA certification classes like CPR and first aid for community members and professionals. For more information, email madisonprograms at aol.com. I'm Scott Topiel, and this week, it's all about respiratory rate. When was the last time you really counted an accurate respiratory rate? It's okay, be honest. I won't tell anyone. I'll even level with you. I'm guilty of guesstimating respiratory rate more often than I'd like to admit. Does that make us terrible people? Or at least terrible EMS providers? Nah, it just makes us normal. Research shows that respiratory rate is the most neglected vital sign. It's not just EMTs and paramedics, nor is it a uniquely American phenomenon. A study of Australian nurses found that many felt that counting respirations takes time away from other more important aspects of patient care. Whether you're an Australian nurse or an American EMT, if you're like most of us, you probably document an estimated respiratory rate rather frequently. So why do we do it? Maybe it's because respirations are a pain to count. Maybe it's because respiratory rate seems less important than other vital signs. After all, you'd be hard-pressed to find an EMT, paramedic, or nurse that documents made-up blood pressures or heart rates. The normal respiratory rate for an adult is 12 to 20 breaths per minute. Anything faster than 20 is considered tachypnea. Less than 12, pradipnea. Breathing is generally controlled by the brainstem. The human body contains sensors called chemoreceptors that detect the amount of carbon dioxide in the blood as well as the blood's pH or acid base level. When CO2 levels are too high, the blood becomes more acidic and the brain responds by increasing the respiratory rate to blow off extra CO2. On the other hand, if CO2s are too low, the brain can slow down breathing in order to hold on to more carbon dioxide. Why does any of this matter? Well, numerous studies have demonstrated that sicker patients tend to have higher respiratory rates. While we obsess over blood pressure and heart rate, and don't get me wrong, those are important, early changes in those vital signs tend to be smaller and less noticeable when compared to respiratory rate. The fact is, respiratory rate is usually more sensitive than other vital signs at helping distinguish between seemingly stable and potentially unstable patients. As little as four breaths outside of normal can serve as an early warning sign. Even mild tachypnea, a respiratory rate of just 21 to 23 breaths per minute, is associated with an increased risk of death. A rate that's elevated a bit more to, say, 24 to 28 breaths per minute increases mortality by 5%. Above 30, the likelihood of dying is five times higher. When it comes to bradypnea, or slow breathing, a respiratory rate of 8 is associated with a risk of death that's 18 times higher than someone with a normal rate of breathing. 
Of course, respiratory rate is meaningless unless we measure it carefully and accurately. It's really not difficult to do, but it takes time. Count for 30 seconds and double the number. Or count for a full minute if you're really interested in accuracy. And you probably remember from school that you don't want to let your patient know that you're watching them breathe, since in addition to brainstem control, breathing can also be controlled voluntarily. A time-tested trick is to act like you're feeling the patient's pulse, perhaps with one hand lightly on their back, and really watch and feel for their breathing. While it doesn't really take that long, in the context of an EMS call, those 30 seconds might as well be 30 minutes. Something I often say to people when they tell me that they don't have time for a particular assessment or procedure is that they're looking at it wrong. What I mean is that sometimes we fall into the trap of seeing a time-consuming task as interfering with our patient care. It's an obstacle we need to get past, sometimes by completely bypassing it, in order to get the job done. In reality, that task is not an obstacle to care, it's part of it. This is true for respiratory rate assessment, just as it's true for, say, slowly administering lidocaine into an I.O. line so that it can be used without causing pain. There are a couple of other ways to determine the respiratory rate. One is to let your cardiac monitor count it for you. Your monitor will count the patient's respiratory rate based on the impedance measured using the EKG leads. This measurement can be prone to artifact, but if you're getting consistent readings, then it's likely accurate. The gold standard for monitoring respiratory rate is N-tidal CO2. If you aren't already in the habit of routinely using capnography to monitor your patients, now would be a great idea to start considering it. Now it's true that not everything that can cause your patient's respiratory rate to increase is dangerous. Take exercise, for example. But there are some very serious things that can affect a patient's respiratory rate, and that's when your careful assessment can help you detect things early, helping you make better treatment and transport decisions. Some worrisome conditions that can cause an increased respiratory rate include things like pneumonia, pleural effusion, diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA, alcohol toxicity, severe kidney dysfunction, sepsis and lactic acidosis, aspirin toxicity, methanol poisoning, carbon monoxide poisoning, hyperthyroid, acute coronary syndrome, heart failure, pulmonary embolism, pneumothorax, asthma and COPD, and even the postictal period after a seizure. In cases of blunt chest trauma, tachypnea is often associated with the presence of more significant internal injuries. This is probably a good time to briefly talk about Kussmaul breathing, a really important breathing pattern that involves deep respirations that can sometimes look like sighing. You may have been taught about this type of breathing in the context of diabetic ketoacidosis. And while it's a common finding in DKA, it can occur with any condition that causes metabolic acidosis, including lactic acidosis from sepsis. A common misconception about Kussmaul breathing is that the respiratory rate is always elevated. That's not true. While tachypnea can occur with this type of breathing pattern, it doesn't have to be present. Also, these respirations are a late sign of metabolic acidosis and usually occur when the patient is already more severely symptomatic. Early tachypnea with shallow rapid respirations occur before Kussmaul breathing sets in, once again emphasizing why it's so important to really pay attention to subtle changes in respiratory rate during your assessment. Now back to our call. While preparing to send your patient to the hospital with the BLS crew, you take another look at him and aren't so sure that the documented respiratory rate of 16 seems right. 
You pause a moment and count the patient's respirations yourself, only to find that his true respiratory rate is 32. Based on this, you decide to upgrade to ALS transport, and while obtaining a more thorough history, the patient tells you that in addition to being nauseated, he's also been urinating a lot. You ask your EMT partner to obtain a finger stick blood glucose, and the glucometer reads, hi. Despite the patient denying a known history of diabetes, you suspect that he is in DKA and start IV fluids according to your local protocol. The hospital confirms your suspicion of diabetic ketoacidosis, and he's admitted to the ICU for further care. As with any vital sign, no single number can tell the whole story. The treatment for disturbances in respiration ultimately depend on providing the correct treatment for the underlying cause. It's common for EMS providers to quickly estimate a patient's respiratory rate, but in reality, these estimates are often far from the actual number. Even small increases in the rate of breathing can indicate that a patient is in more distress than initially thought. An abnormal respiratory rate, even just slightly, is an abnormal vital sign. Treat it as such. That's it for this episode of 911Cast. We'd like to thank our founding sponsor, OneKit, makers of high-quality first aid kits. Check out their products at buyonekit.com. That's B-U-Y-O-N-E, kit.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and review us on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening.